0: Today's reading is Matthew 527 to 42. It can be found on page 893 of the Bible's next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her, with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. The Word of the Lord.
1: Wow. (laughs) All right. I invite you to bow your heads as we pray for God's help. Uh, hearing his voice today. Our God of grace, we look to you and in this moment have arrived here and we sit in some chairs or on a carpet and we're um, to some degree uh, bringing an openness to hearing your voice. And so now we pray that whether we come sad or happy, depressed or joy-filled, whether we come content or discontent, whether we come feeling forgiving or resentful, whether we come with great doubts or great faith, um, whether we feel like we don't belong or we feel like we've never belonged more in a place, from all these places we sit here and we're all the same. We're more of a mess than we care to admit. And your story in Scripture tells us that through Christ, even though that's true, even with all of our mess, in Christ we're more loved and accepted than we ever imagined, And so we look now, as we listen to your words, and we want to hear your voice, we look for that message of grace to be true. We look that we might be able to somehow in our hearts hold together the mess and the love. We might be assured of your love, and that that love might drive us out, that our lives would spill over with your love all around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, The question of the week last week um, went like this Where would you go for marriage advice? You know, because this passage is touching on uh, marriage and divorce and adultery. So someone said, uh, Someone I know who has a long marriage but has survived ups and downs. Someone says, a counselor who turns to God through the Bible. Someone else says, someone a little down the road who has similar values and beliefs about marriage. Um, Other answers, uh, podcasts, uh, books. Someone else said, lifetime movies. (laughs) Someone says, my parents or a book or a friend who has been in similar circumstances. And someone said, I really don't know what this means. I did Google it, but it still didn't help me much. Someone said, John's barbecue and foot massage. I don't know. and I, Like I said, Googling that did not help. Um, but it was funny. Um, so we're looking at this passage, and, and it seems really, really heavy. So how do we get into this place where, how, how can we kind of make our way into what Jesus is talking about here? You know, divorce and adultery and lust, and, and then a bunch of stuff about oaths and swearing. We're going to kind of not really even get into that. We don't have enough time. But how do we get into this as Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount? Well, let me just throw out, let me kind of scatter out a bunch of different examples of different approaches to things, different people um, and faith approaches. So just imagine with me some of these scenarios. Imagine a, there's a pastor who leads a church that's really focused on the Bible. And they've decided that they are holding to a very high standard of marriage. And their attitude goes something like this. You know, Jesus, it seems, didn't permit divorce, and so neither will we. And let's just imagine the pastor of this church even says and is known for saying, you know, I will not officiate a marriage that is a remarriage. Unless it's, you know, a spouse has died. But if one of the people has, has um, had a married, marriage before and their spouse didn't die, I'm not going to officiate. Just imagine that. And then imagine um, a bunch of seminarians. You know, they're studying to become leaders in ministry. And they're studying an article. This article has been given to them. And it's an article about um, actually one of the particular uh, words in our passage today. It's a, an article about this word in the Greek. It's porneia. And it's the word that uh, forms what they're calling in this seminary discussion, the exception clause. Very important, they think, as they're studying this, because it seems like Jesus says, I do not permit divorce except, so it's the exception clause. And then there's this word that we've got a translation, sexual immorality, the Greek word is porneia. And so in this article and in this study, they're trying to figure out what does this word exactly mean? And there's theories and other passages and other word studies thrown together, but the idea is if we can pin down the exact nature of this word, we will know exactly what boundary line we need to enforce, we need to hold to when it comes to marriage as we are in ministry. Then imagine another group of young adults who, they grew up going to their parents' churches, but now they've found each other and they're passionate and they're fervent and they've decided that their parents' churches were too tepid and kind of just almost like a country club. And they said, we're going to have a richer, deeper, more fervent kind of faith. We're going to take things really seriously. We are going to have rigor to our faith. We are going to dive deep. And so they've even discovered this ancient practice called a rule of life from the monastic era where people at a monastery would hold to a certain kind of covenant of vows, and, and, and if we hold to these things, then we're kind of in this monastery. And so this group has decided to have something like this, and so they're going to keep each other accountable to daily Bible reading, to confessing their sins to each other. Whoa. Whoa. To regular attendance, into regular tithing, into regularly serving the needy, into a Sabbath rest every week. They're going to hold themselves to this, and to implementing the Sermon on the Mount as much as they can, and they're each going to have an accountability partner that they get with and they get honest with. And this group truly believes that a radical obedience must authenticate a real Christianity, and it is their route. It is their route through this rule of life to assurance that they'll be considered in that group of real Christians. Or consider, let's go back in time, let's consider the era, the few centuries, uh, first few centuries of the Christian movement when there were some leaders of the church who were men and it was in a time when celibacy was really exalted and celebrated in the church as showing kind of the real faith. And so some even underwent a certain surgery because they, their passions were so strong and they really, they heard Jesus' words that we just read about lust. And they said, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. And so they were seeking to assure themselves that they're following Christ's impossible ideal. I mean, it was kind of interesting, right? Your mind might even go there. If you're reading that passage, you know, even if you look lustfully, it deals with that. And then right after, it talks about cutting off body parts, right? So, I mean, you know, it's kind of like right there. And eventually, in a, in a council in, in 325 AD, in a council of churches, the Nica- Council of Nicaea, they, one of the first orders of business was to ban this practice of voluntary castration for church leaders. Okay, and then uh, totally back to our time, just imagine two different voices in our culture, two American Christian voices. One of the voices says, the real litmus test for a Christian in in today's America is you have to be pro-life. That's one voice. And then there's another voice, and the other person says, the other voice goes, the real litmus test for Christianity in today's world is that you have to have you have to support compassionate legislation for immigrants. And you got these two voices and they both are very well supported by scripture and both of these voices are also heard singing in on Sunday morning the song Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a rest like me a wretch like me. You won't necessarily find those voices coming out of the same mouth at the same time. But in all of these examples, so I just went through a whole bunch of examples. Why? Because in all of them there is some hint, I'm trying to paint a picture of all the different ways you can have this mentality that I want to find the comfort and assurance in, a, in clear boundary markers of Christian living. Let me say that again. Seeking comfort and assurance in the clear boundary markers of Christian living. And that mentality is usually present when people give a serious look at the Sermon on the Mount that we're a few weeks into doing ourselves. We've been looking at this. And we're in this section where Jesus is doing this antithesis thing. It's the antithetical teachings where he says, you've heard it said this, and I say this. You've heard it said this, and I say this. You've heard it say this, and I say this. It's antithetical. And usually when people look at this section of the Bible, they say, aha, here it is. This is the most common way to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Aha, here it is, the boundary lines that will lead to true holiness. If only we wind ourselves up enough with rigor and we help each other out and we get accountable to each other, only if we do this, then we'll finally achieve, we'll get God's approval. And usually, to be fair, someone will add a caveat to that. They'll add, well, we can't do it on our own. We need God's help. But with if you you know pray and if you ask for, you know you depend on Jesus and you ask for God's help, you can obey this and you can pursue obeying this. Almost as if Jesus is your spotter, you know, when you're lifting weights, you need a little help, you know. I, you know, today I don't have a spotter, so I'll have to just put the weights down, I'll just take that five pound weight off and do myself. But if I have a tiny bit of help, then I can get even more. I can. To try even harder. So, you know, you've got to pray, you've got to get God's help, but by and large, you've got to work hard and do this. And so what there is, what I'm getting at is that there's two ways to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And not just the Sermon on the Mount, really, you find all kinds of places in the Bible that, that have pretty strong lines, have pretty strong teachings and principles. Sermon on the Mount really clumps them together, and it helps us see kind of where we're going to go with this. But there's two ways to look at it. So you look at the Sermon on the Mount, two ways to look at this kind of teaching, these kind of lo- what they often talk about is the law. Two ways to look at it. And one is or one way to look at the Sermon on the Mount, sorry, is law. It's it's the law. It's the law approach. It's my approach towards faith is a law approach. And so someone reads the Sermon on the Mount through this lens and they either get really excited or really turned off. You know, they look at this and they say, "Hey, this is just law." You know, and so one person gets excited because they say, "I, you know, I'm convinced that the problem with our world is laxity, moral sloughing off. Everyone's flaky. No one takes things seriously anymore." Thank goodness for the Sermon on the Mount. Here we go. Let's jump on board. Let's get to work. I'm excited. The other, the other, the other reaction of viewing this as law. If someone looks at this and goes, "Oh no, thank you. <laughs> this is exactly what's wrong with things." Listen to this inflexible Jesus. With all of his, you know, moral straightjacketing over all straightjacketing, moral straight-jacketing over all the fun parts of life, right? Jesus is just a rulemonger. See, I knew it. I mean, everyone tries to make Jesus sound all loving and everything, but listen to what he's saying here about marriage. He's so intolerant. So, if you approach it as law, you have, you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. But there's actually another approach, and that's what I would call the gospel approach. Or maybe even another word, grace. See, if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you just kind of read it in a vacuum, Jesus sets this really high bar, really high standard. And, and it should, if you're a little bit familiar with the Bible and the New Testament, some alarm bells should go off. You should, things like this should come to mind. There's a, there's a verse in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, um, For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So in your reading, Jesus saying, you know, hey, you know if you can't if you can't meet this high standard, if your righteousness can't be surpassed that of the Pharisees, you know, I don't know you, you know, he throws around the word Gehenna, which is this fiery garbage pit outside of Jerusalem. You know, if you can't meet the standard, you're going to burn. But there's that other thing. For it is by grace you have been saved. Not of yourselves as a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. So you should have in your mind, wait, okay, Jesus is giving this incredibly high standard of, teach, of Christian living, but he's also saying we can't save ourselves through our living. What's going on here? another place in the Bible in chapter, in, um, chapter 3 and a little bit later in the, gospel, in the book of Romans, we get this picture that the, that the law and all the parts of the Bible that kind of qualify under law, that they function actually to help us see ourselves better and to see our brokenness better, to see how flawed we are. Kind of like the law is a mirror. You know. You hold it up, and as soon as someone says, don't commit adultery... You know, that's the teaching that Jesus is tapping into from the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment. As soon, so soon as someone holds it up, it's like, oh, wow, I see, my, I see my failure, I see my flaws, I see my imperfect devotion. Or whatever other law is held up before, you know, love your enemies, you hold up and, oh, and you feel your brokenness, you feel the weight of it, you know you can't achieve it. and then I mentioned last week, but I think it's important to say it again, is that later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to his disciples when they say, there's this great interaction, and it's very much what our reaction should be from the Sermon on the Mount. They say, Jesus, how can this be possible? Who can be saved? And he says, it's great, it's like a teachable moment, he says, like, aha, with humans it is not possible, but with God it is possible. So is the Sermon on the Mount perhaps supposed to function this way as a mirror, as a wake-up call, kind of cornering us and not giving us any wiggle room. Jesus takes the seventh commandment, and he deals with it in such a way that there's there's no escape. He broadens it out. He doesn't give anyone a chance to be able to look down on someone else and say, hey, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but some of us are holding it together here, and uh, it's time to step up your game. You know, are you in or are you out? It's interesting. Jesus broadens the scope of the commandment and, and shows how uh, o- obedience and devotion to God gets into every little tiny area of our life. impossibly so. So he's broadening and broadening the scope of the law. And it, we live in a culture that's broadening in a sense. But we hear this in today's world where we've actually, we're expanding the boundary lines, not of the law, but of freedom from the law. And as we continue to expand the bound, I feel like we've expanded the boundary lines entirely to ensure that it's like the opposite of what Jesus is doing. Our culture is trying to ensure that all of us, every last persuasion of us is pure in their relationship life, their romantic life, their sexual life. That's our culture We've, we've got to make sure everyone knows that they're, they're pure and they're okay and they're good. And Jesus is doing the exact opposite. He's saying sexuality is broken, relationships are broken in all of us. And the sooner each of us acknowledges that, the sooner we walk upon joy's, the, the doorstep of joy, the sooner we walk upon the journey of healing that we desperately need. So, in Jesus' perspective, you would say, which married people are succeeding at being a great spouse? None. Perfect spouse, maybe you add that. Which single people are glorifying God perfectly in their singleness? None. None. Maybe that uh, top, maybe that arena of topics, you know, adultery, sexuality, marriage, maybe may, singleness, maybe that's too uncomfortable. We could use another example. How about money? <laughs> but, well, and just to say, this is, just to show you this is not just, it's not just Jesus picking on one thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through all these different things. But imagine, if you just think about it, it's very similar to how Jesus talks about money. If Jesus was here today, I'm convinced that he would say, those who want to enter the kingdom must go and sell their stock holdings, their third car, they must liquidate their rental property and give all their, earn all of that to the poor. Jesus might say, it is impossible to own a $40,000 car and to enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, and maybe he'd be right but that wouldn't be the point. See, Jesus' point would not be, he wouldn't be hoping that some of us would say, see, I'm pretty fervent. Thanks, Jesus, for clarifying the boundary lines because now we know. You know, I look at me. I, I got rid of my second and third car. Look at me, wow. And look at what I did with my tax refund, how I gave that away, or gave it to the church. And look at what I did with my house. But I couldn't help notice that some of you You know, you're talking about that rental property. You know, I saw the car you're driving. Jesus' goal is not to produce people who have just dealt with the command, but not with their greed. Jesus, with uh, his passage from today, he's not hoping that there will be a whole bunch of people who really dial it up with the law, but have never touched their lust. And so as you approach the Sermon on the Mount, I think one of the things to just, just remember is that um, the Bible, but especially the Sermon on the Mount, we're tempted to see it as an owner's manual. We're tempted to see it in, in the pu- as pure moralism. And if you treat it that way, you're actually not even going to know what it's like to be a Christian. You're not. You're going to be so off base. You're going to be just one more moralist in the world. And there's moralists of every stripe. There's Republican moralists and Democrat moralists. There's gay moralists and straight moralists. There's um, sacred moralists and secular moralists. And all of them, imagine they can break down things, the right life, into sizable, bite-sized, manageable chunks. And that's, if you want to do that with Jesus, if you want to do that with the the Word of God, the Scriptures, the ancient um, Bible, then you know you're going to be just a moralist, and you're going to be just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, which read up a little bit, and you'll see how He handles them. One of the things as I've been studying the, the joy of looking and studying and thinking about this, this, these passages together is that my, you know my mind kind of keeps chewing on this week after week. But I keep coming back to another parable that Jesus talks about, and it's one that I, my mind often comes back to with all kinds of things, but in particular with the Sermon on the Mount, my mind comes back to how if we look at this, these teachings, moralistically, we're going to be just like the older brother in the prodigal son story where jesus says there's this older brother and the younger brother the younger brother runs away from the family and cashes out and just goes and has a good time life is too short i got to live you only live once fomo fear of missing out all the things yolo fomo and he's off and then he comes back depleted but also he's had like he's hit the rock bottom and he's had this amazing realization of his own depravity and of his own empty handedness and he comes back to the father because perhaps he could serve as a servant perhaps he could eke out a tiny living again in his father, generous father's kingdom he's had this full awareness and a party is thrown for him the elder brother is standing outside and he's angry that's the only end point that you can have if you pursue Jesus and the Bible moralistically First and foremost, if you have it as a plan for how you're going to assure yourself that you've arrived, you will end up angry and resentful and your bitterness will grow. And in the end of that party, I love it, or at the end of that parable of the prodigal son, I love the, you know, the elder brother sitting out just, he's so upset. And he has no, he's never hit a point in his life where he feels like he hasn't earned his way to where he stands. And he has no sense that he's lived all his years under the complete generosity and care of his loving father. And at the end of the parable, the jury's out. We still don't know. The parable ends, and the older brother is just outside of the party. So lo and behold, this person who led a scandalous life, I'm guessing the younger brother, I'm guessing he committed adultery maybe at least once on that journey spending all he had. It says, it talks about prostitutes in there. And he comes back, and he's accepted right in. But the older brother, who's lived completely perfect, never violated the law, isn't in the party of grace. Let's pray. Our God of grace, you invite us into the party of grace. And if we can finally, if we can finally see our great need for you, You can change our pursuit of obedience into a delight and a joy. And that's really the difference. I pray that you help us to move. If we find ourselves in a place where we are like an elder brother, I pray that you will move so that before we think we might climb to you, we might first realize our own weakness, our own smallness, our own need. And in some way, you need to help us, you need to humble us. And I pray that our transition may be one from duty, duty-filled uh, life to joy-filled obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.